I can't tell you how thrilled I am today to introduce our guest speaker. He is a, just a, a great friend and encourager. I don't know if you have these people in your life when you hear their names or you see them, a smile comes on your face. And that's how I feel about Dr. Bill Brown. Dr. Brown has been the president of Cedarville University now for about the last nine years. And prior to that time, he, for 19 years, he was the president of Bryan College up here in Dayton, Tennessee, outside of Chattanooga. And, uh, Bill uh, is, is just a wonderful gift to the body of Christ. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, he, he's brilliant. He is a tremendous leader. Um, God has used him. The school is growing under his watch. But one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that God really has his hand on him concerning is this whole idea of worldview and engaging culture. And we invited Bill to come down this weekend, A, to, to, to speak to our, the, the guys who were involved in uh, Fellowship Institute yesterday. And I tell you, as I sat there for three hours, we were just about spellbound. As we interacted, I thought to myself, boy, I wish we should have invited all of the guys, all the leaders, everybody to be a part of this. It was absolutely uh, wonderful and stimulating. He's going to speak this morning and uh, might want to take out something to write on because what he has to say, I really believe, is a word for us at this moment in history. And then later on this evening, we're going to go, uh, he's going to be with our staff uh, on a staff retreat and tonight and tomorrow. So we're, we're working him a little bit. But it's a joy. His daughter attended here. Uh, 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 she and her husband and the grandbaby, and they would sometimes, Bill would come and sneak down, not s- just to see his kids, but really to see that grandbaby. And so they have since moved back up to Ohio, but I'm so glad that you came to be with us. So would you welcome with me Dr. Bill Brown? Thank you, Crawford. Well, good morning, everybody. Special thanks for taking care of my daughter and son-in-law and Jack. Uh, in fact, his, his name is Jared. He's a junior, but uh, we call him Jack because Jack is the male name, right? Jack Bauer. You know? <laughs> Jack Reacher, Captain Jack Sparrow, although, okay. But um, if, you, if you don't know anything, you don't know Jack, right, okay. So, uh, but Jack will be two years old tomorrow, and uh, so, but uh, when they came, uh, my daughter and son-in-law to Atlanta, they lived uh, in Roswell that way, part, and um, uh, they looked for a lot of churches and settled here and... You guys were great for them. They loved being here for those two years, and uh, they grew a lot, both in the early in their marriage and then with uh, the little one coming. And now there's William, little Liam, we call him, and he's seven weeks old, and uh, they enjoy living near us, and that, that's been a blessing. So I have the privilege of sharing some thoughts with you this morning on engaging the culture. And it's something that you as a church enjoy doing. It's very obvious. But it's something that a lot of churches don't know how to do. And I want to dig in a little bit into your heart and into your mind. Both of those we're supposed to give to the Lord, right? 
We're called to be salt and light in the world, not in the church. And for salt to be effective as a preservative and as a a savory influence, a flavoring element, it's got to be in contact. And so I think it's important for us to understand what that means. I've been in higher ed for many, many years, and I I love Christ-centered higher education. We call Cedarville a Christ-centered learning community. We we don't say we're a Christian college because uh, colleges can't be Christians, only people can And so our our focus is on the person of Christ. And what's interesting about where I am is that uh, over three-fourths of our students are in in the professions. Uh, We have a doctorate in pharmacy, a nursing program with a master's in that program in business and um, three engineering majors, uh, filmmaking. In fact, one of our grads just won this weekend the uh, Porsche International Competition for a Commercial. And so if you go to the movies, you'll see a Porsche commercial. That's Mike Corbel's uh, commercial that he just finished and did and won this award. Not only does he get paid for it and his commercial's out there, but he gets a Porsche as well. <laughs> and not a mini one. I mean a real Porsche. And so he is uh, my new best friend. Uh, but when we talk about engaging the culture, we're really talking about people. I don't want to talk abstractly, and that's one of the things that I get to do. When I tell people what I do, I say I like to deal in precious commodities because that's indeed what we do, particularly those who are in education. In fact, let me show you some of the reasons why I am excited about what I do, and I've got hundreds, but I'll just show you a couple, uh, a few here. Uh, Here's Abby. Uh, You may see her on TV a lot from uh, some of the Nick shows to NCIS, a lot of those she sees her place in Hollywood as being a person who can serve Christ. Damar Smith, if you're an NFL fan, you know D. Smith, head of the NFL Player Association. He's a good, uh, good friend. He's a, an alum of Cedarville. He sees God as using him in ministry in, in the NFL. If you've enjoyed uh, the Christmas shoes, the movie, the book, A Christmas Hope, The Christmas Blessing, top-rated movies by CBS, uh, Donna Van Leer. Uh, as a writer, though, she's a friend and a Cedarville grad. Uh, the fellow who has an up-and-down job as a president of Otis Elevator, Randy Wilcox, is a, is a Cedarville grad. Oh, that was bad, I know. Um, but uh, again, his role he sees as being Christ first. And uh, it's amazing how God uses him. Or one of the top editors at Christianity Today, Rob Maul. Or Paula, who has a great job as a, as a sportscaster in Chicago. You see her on some national programs. Stacy, who I think has the best job in the world as an engineer with NASA, because that's where I wanted to be. Or Cody, who graduated from Cedarville just a few years ago. And of course, at Cedarville, we have these big dreams. We're trying to get everybody to have these huge dreams. And so when he graduated, he said, I want to go to Iraq. So he went to Iraq to hike around. You know, it doesn't sound like a great thing to do, but, but he did. But while he was there, particularly in northern Iraq, he came across these, these kids who had congenital heart disease, and they were dying at very young ages. He was so broken by that, so overwhelmed by that, you've got to do something. And so he came back, and like Tom's, he sells shoes and uh, has a, a line of clothing and so on, raises all this money, and they've been doing thousands and thousands of heart surgeries for kids in northern Iraq. In fact, he told me next year they have 51 weeks of surgeries planned, all paid for. Um, gives me chills when I think about it. And why do they do it? Because Jesus Christ called them to care. 
And it hurts him when he sees those kids. And the opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ are incredible. Incredible. If he'd just gone in there as a missionary, probably would have gotten booted at best. So that's what I want to talk about. It's helping us be people like that. To engage the world for Christ. That's why I do what I do at Cedarville. We've got 3,300, 3,400 students. And the vision is to know the word of God because that drives you to the God of the word. And all of our graduates minor in Bible. It's an aggressive Bible minor. We want everybody to have more than a Sunday school knowledge of the Bible. But to know the word of God, to know how to apply the word of God for the rest of your life. To know how to live the word of God, to communicate the word of God to a world that so desperately needs that hope. And then we get to have chapel every day. I mean, we have 3,600 people gathered together. And we let the students do praise and worship, which is great. I think we've got 100 praise bands. Every guy's got a guitar. You know how that is. And it's just, it's just awesome. We even let people like Crawford Loretz come and speak. He's one of our favorites. As is his son, Brian, by the way. One of our favorites. It's just, I get to speak every Monday, which is amazing. I say, say all that just to let you know that it's not just doing college, it's college's sake. We have top tier in our academic programs because we think that honors the Lord. It's got to be excellent. But by the same token, to have a heart to go out and say, I've got this dream to change the world for Christ. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. But it starts right here. It starts right here. So I want to make three points. No poem, but three points. The first one is this. You've got to see through the eyes of Christ. The command that Jesus repeated over and over again was follow me. Follow me. And that means to do what he says, to do what he has done, to love as he's loved, to follow the pattern that he gave us to follow. I want his view of the Bible. I want his view of marriage. I want his view of end times. I want to follow him. So if people don't like my views, I say, well, talk to him. I'm following him. That's why you always start with the word of God. Passage of scripture. I'm, in fact, I, I, I apologize last hour. I'll do the same to you. I, I graduated from Dallas Seminary. I went to, for my undergraduate at the University of South Florida. I have a degree in mathematics. The Lord said, go forth and multiply. So I thought, okay. <laughs> Actually, I wasn't even a believer then. I, w- I went into mathematics because I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And so that's a good way to get there, get into abstract mathematics and go into astrophysics. And you can become an astronaut, possibly. That was my career track. And um, so I got in the university, but when I came to know Jesus Christ, that changed the trajectory of my life. I went ahead and finished with that degree, but God had something higher than being an astronaut for me, and that was great. So I spent a few years out, met a sweet girl. She asked me to marry her. I said, good, sir. So we got married, and then uh, I went on for seven years of tribulation at Dallas Seminary, and uh, then got into uh, education at Bryan, and now... I've been at, uh, at Cedarville for, for nine years, as, uh, as Crawford mentioned. But um, today I want to just t- talk about a theme, okay? So a lot of passages of Scripture, but it all converges on the theme of engaging the culture. But beginning here with the heart of Christ, seeing through the heart of Christ, with his eyes, with his heart, 
with the mind of Christ. The passage is Matthew chapter 9. We'll start here. And um, on the screen there, you probably, oh, look at that. Thank you, guys. It was so small, I can just read it up there then. I was pull up my glasses. Okay. Matthew 9, beginning of verse 35. Now listen to the, this is such a crucial story. A part, it's a crucial part of the story of Matthew as he's laying out the life of Jesus. But I want you to pick up something here. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of, of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Every disease and sickness. Okay? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What's striking about this passage is that Jesus is standing and looking over Jerusalem and all the people. And the passage says that he had compassion on them. And the word compassion is not really a very good translation of the word. There is a Greek word for compassion. Compassion, of course, means to suffer with. And there's a Greek word, sumpatho, which means to, to suffer with. But this is the word splunkna in Greek which means your guts, your inner organs. It's the word that's used, for example, when Judas hangs himself, his blancna spills out onto the ground. Not a pretty picture, sorry, but that's, that's the word, okay? We're talking the Bible here, okay? And the, the, the force is the suffering, the emotion is so deep, it hurts. You're not just patronizing because you feel sorry for them, but it's so deep that it hurts. Jesus is looking out at the people. It hurts. It hurts. And he looks at his disciples and said, the harvest is plentiful. Look. Go. Pray somebody will go. That God will send. It's a key word, I think, throughout the scriptures, particularly in the stories of Jesus. If you look at Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. When a Jewish leader says, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And your neighbor is yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? How, how far do I have to extend this loving my neighbor thing? And of course, that's not the question Jesus answered, was it? He didn't say who his neighbor was. He told him how he could be the neighbor. But as he describes the the Good Samaritan, as we call it. The Jewish man is beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And the religious leaders step over him, the Levite, the priest, those who knew the Bible, who worshipped, who tithed, who did all the good things religion calls us to do. And it was the Samaritan. Jesus was always bringing race into the issue. In fact, when Jesus says later at the end of the story, now, who was the neighbor? The guy couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He hated them so much. The racial divide was so strong. And they were infuriated that Jesus would bring a Samaritan in as the good guy. But it's the Samaritan that walks up and comes upon this Jewish man beaten 
and bloodied and dying. And the passage says, he saw him and it hurt. It hurt him so bad. He had to do something. He didn't know the man. It didn't matter. He picked him up. He sacrificed his time and his money to make sure he was going to be okay. Go back to the story of the prodigal son, which is really five chapters later in Luke and Luke 15. The young man who'd taken all that his father was going to give him and he wasted every bit of it. And he's at the end of life itself. He practiced a little, a little speech he was going to give his dad when he got back and said, I want to be a slave. Just give me a job. I forfeited everything I had to be part of the family. I know that. I don't deserve anything. Can you just give me a job? And the passage goes on to say that when Jesus saw his son, excuse me, when the father saw his son coming, a long way off, it hurt. It hurt. So he ran down to his son, and his son delivered the little speech, but his dad didn't even hear him. He threw his arms around. He wanted to come back as a slave. He brought him back as a son. That's how God treats you, doesn't he? Unworthy, not deserving, not having earned any bit of it. And he wants you back. If that's how God treats us, why in heaven's name can we not treat everybody else like that? Right? Who are we not to treat people with grace? Oh, they don't deserve it. That's the point. They don't. But that's how Jesus sees the world. And that's how we should as well. Right? That's the starting point. The Apostle Paul says pretty much the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Which is a key passage in our discussion about culture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, kind of an interesting passage because it's in the section 8, 9, and 10. Those chapters where Paul is dealing with an issue of meat offered to idols, okay? Not something you deal with much here in Atlanta. But in the middle of this, he's talking about how he's free. In fact, the gospel makes us free. We know the truth, the truth sets us free, right? I mean, we are free. Free from the law, free from, from philosophies, free from people. We're free in every way. And then he says in verse 19, First Corinthians 9, though I am free and belong to no man, I do what? What does the passage say there? I make myself a slave. To whom? Think about that just for a moment. The word slave is not the word diakonos, just a servant. It's a bond slave, the worst of the worst slaves. I make myself a slave voluntarily. I am free. So I have the freedom to make myself a slave to everyone. Everybody I meet, I make myself a slave for what purpose? What does it say? 
to win as many as possible to Christ. In other words, what Paul is giving us here is his M.O. of ministry. Everybody I meet, everybody I encounter, everybody I come upon, I enslave myself to them because it is my job to build a bridge to Jesus Christ for them. It's my job to do that. I want to get inside their heart. I want to get inside their head because I need to build a bridge to Jesus Christ so that they need to understand this incredible message that's seen in the story of the prodigal son, that's seen on the bloody cross, that's seen on Easter Sunday, an incredible message that he has done it all. We are forgiven. We don't deserve it. But grace is given to all of us. And somehow I have to communicate that to this person in front of me. I need to know what their questions are. I need to know what their needs are because the answers and the provision is always Jesus Christ. That's my job, to communicate that to them. Not for me to say, clean up your life. Not for me to say, you've got to vote like us. You've got to dress like us. You've got to smell like us so you can be one of us. You can enslave yourself to us and join this church. Enslave yourself to us and become part of our group. No. I make myself a slave to you because I want you to know my Lord. That's my job. And then he articulates to the rest of the passage, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. doesn't mean he adopted their, their way of life or their belief, but he was trying to get inside again their life. I've become all things to all men, he says, so that I, by some means I might save them. Please, Lord, use me in the lives of those I meet. And imagine if a Christian actually does this, where all day long when you encounter people, the first thing in your mind is, how can I build a bridge to Jesus for them? Great story. And I won't tell you where it is because, well, I won't tell you where it is. A a little bookstore opened up. Across the street at the parking lot, some church people got together on a regular basis, holding signs, chanting, yelling at everybody that went in across the street. Condemning pretty much them to hell and everybody else to hell. You know how that goes. A young man pulled up in his little old beat-up car, got out with a mop and a bucket. Walked right through the people with their signs, went up to the door, went in, lady behind the desk, and said, I'd like to clean your bathrooms. And she said, why do you want to clean our bathrooms? He says, I imagine they're pretty nasty. And she laughed and said, okay. And they said, whoa, whoa, we can't pay you anything for doing this. He said, oh, that's okay. So he went in and cleaned the bathrooms in the adult bookstore. Next day, he shows up. Mop, bucket, walks through all the protesters, goes up. I'm here to clean the bathroom. She says, okay. Well, two weeks. He does it every single day. And it got to be a joke. After two weeks, he shows up again. And several of the staff came up and said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Well, your bathrooms are pretty nasty. We, We know that. But why are you doing this? And he said, because I want to share Jesus Christ with you. And this is the only thing I could think to do to serve you. And they said, what? Is it the only thing I could think of that you might need me to do? And so we need to hear more about this. Whole staff sat down around a big table. And for two hours, he talked about Jesus Christ with them. Notice, he had the opportunity to share Christ with people who really wanted to hear and not the people across the street. 
Now, there are times where you draw lines morally. I know that. That's not my point. But what I'm saying is when we talk about engaging the culture for Christ, we see through the eyes of Christ the people around us. People are always in process. Unsaved people usually act unsaved. They dress unsaved. They say unsaved things. So what? The world hates us. That's what Jesus said they would do. So what? We try too hard to be acceptable and have some credibility with them. We try too hard to get ahead in this world, and this is the wrong world to get ahead in. See with the eyes of Christ. Mark Driscoll was telling me that he went over to uh, India to, to speak at a pastor's conference. And um, he, said, he said, everywhere I looked, there were these idols, all painted blue. You know, if you've ever been to India. And he said, I was so overwhelming. It's like every five feet, you know, idol, 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 idol. And he got to where the conference was going to be. And he met one of the pastor's wives. And she had just come back from the United States a few weeks before. And um, he said, well, how do you like it? And she said, well, I didn't like it very much. He said, oh, really? Why not? She says, you have so many idols. And he, what? Now, this is a lady from a country, you know, where part of the country was dominated by idols. She says, you have so many idols. And she began to describe, you know, you go into the bookstore on the covers of magazines. That's what we worship. Billboards, commercials. It's what we worship. Celebrities, it's what we worship. We have a show called American. For us, it's just part of our conversation. But somebody that has eyes to see sees really what's there, right? Which leads me to the second point know the world you serve. I believe God has called us not only to exegete the word, but to exegete the world as well, to understand it. I mean, if we're going to enslave ourselves to them, to communicate the word of God to them, to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to them by what we say and how we live, then it's important we know where they're coming from, right? I mean, really, it really is. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is a well-known passage. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away, all things become new. But the verse right before that, which is 2 Corinthians 5, 16, says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, no longer. And it's so easy to take the world's perspective of the people around us. The people that we see on television. And lose sight that we're supposed to look differently and see differently. Bill Witcherman, who was the policy advisor to former senator, former Senate, the majority leader, Bill Frist, Dr. Frist from Tennessee, who was in Washington, he made this statement. I said, wait a minute, I've got to write that down. This is what he said. He said, will and grace, a WWE smackdown, Eminem and Madonna have more to do with the direction of our culture than all of Congress. The man who walks the halls of power knows where the genuine influence is. Is that true? Sure. Or take this quote from Phyllis Tickle, 
from Publishers Weekly. She's a religion editor of Publishers Weekly. More theology is conveyed in and probably retained from one hour of popular television than from all the sermons that are delivered on any given weekend in America's synagogues, churches, and mosques. And the point is this, that every song, every television show, every movie, every book, every commercial has at its basis a worldview message. It's telling you what to believe, how to live. Right? I mean, it is. Did you, did you know that? And we have a tendency to be very, very passive. It's only a song. It's only a movie. It's only a television show. And it's not just our kids saying that. You just sit and veg. Every one of them has a message. When I was in Dallas, I was invited to be a youth pastor at a church. And I'd never been a youth pastor. And this church had three youth. I can do that. Okay? <laughs> and after three months, we'd grown to two, which is like, well, wait a minute. If this keeps going, I'll be by myself. Okay? Uh, but over the next six months, we saw about six kids, 60 kids come to Christ. And uh, it, was, uh, it was amazing. Most of them had never been to church or had their families. And so we started this program on, on Wednesday nights where we had a meal and I'd, I'd teach to them. We started with the book of Acts, you know, going through. I didn't know what to do. I said, well, just study the Bible. How's that? And that was great. These kids were growing. But what I found was, because they didn't have much of a background in following Christ, that they loved the, the spiritual things we were doing, but it had very little impact on their social life, very little impact on their dating life and their values and so on. And I found that what was really determinative about how they dressed and the things that they did and said and dated, how they dated, was from their entertainment choices, or mainly music. So this is what I did, which was kind of ahead of its time at the time. I said, okay, this is what we're going to do this summer, because school year was uh, starting to get out. I want you to bring in your favorite song by your favorite group, by the most influential group in your life. Everybody gets, gets one choice. And we're going to write the words out. We wrote the words out on, on uh, overhead, didn't have PowerPoint. Wrote the words out, put it on the overhead, played the song. And we're going to ask, what is this song telling me to believe? What's it telling me to do? What's the worldview here? How does it line up with truth? Did that all summer long. Some of the songs are really good. I mean, they're really good. Some of them are like, uh-oh, you know. And it was always funny because kids would forget that certain words would be in there. They get so used to them, you know. And so here we are in the church, you know, got the big screen up there and all these things on there. But I think it's time to bring those people to church, don't you? Well, it was life-changing for those kids because they began to realize that you cannot separate your following Jesus Christ from the choices that you make. Either the Lord of all or is not Lord at all, okay? We seek first his kingdom. It doesn't say to seek anything else second. So, so anyway, it was just a great experience, and that youth group just continued to do some amazing things, amazing things. It was a great time for me. I was back in Dallas, uh, I go back to Dallas all the time, but I was back one time and this lady came up to me and she had been a part of this youth group when she was younger, okay, she's married with three kids now. And I always like to say, because when she came up to me, she grabbed my hand, did not even say hello, I hadn't seen her in so many years, didn't even say hi, how you doing? She looked at me and she said, you ruined my music listening. <laughs> and her point was simply, I can't listen to a song now without thinking, what is the song telling me to believe? What's it telling me to do? What's the worldview here? How's it line up with truth? 
And then she smiled and said, it's the best gift I ever received. The gift of discernment. Because once you start doing that, you start seeing things that you never saw before. Once your mind gets into the discernment mode, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It really is. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 to test everything. And hold on to that which is good. Test everything, he says. In original Greek, it reads this way. Test everything. I mean, it's pretty clear. What he wants, he wants us to test everything. You evaluate everything. My kids thought, oh, dad, because every time we'd watch something, you knew we were going to talk about it. And they're really good at it now, by the way. They're really good. In fact, my, one of my favorite stories is I took my son uh, 10 years ago or so to go see Shyamalan's movie with Mel Gibson called Signs. You're familiar with it. And uh, so we're sitting there, and he's 12, and I was sitting there watching. I thought, I thought it was a pretty good movie, actually. Um, Shyamalan's gone downhill since then, but that's okay. okay so, but anyway, uh, we're sitting there, and uh, in the middle of the movie, my son leans over to me and says, Dad, this movie is far more theistic than any of Shyamalan's other films. In fact, his others tend to be more transcendental, but this particular is giving him all these points. <laughs> I said, that's my boy, you know. <laughs> Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.13, after he's gone 12 verses and talk about how credible it is to be in the body of Christ. We have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. He says, therefore, then he gives seven, the seven habits of, of highly effective Christians. Okay? And the first one is, prepare your minds for action. King James says, gird up the loins of your mind. Nobody has any idea what that means. But what it means is, you know, they gird up their loins, they'd grab the back of their, their toga and stick it in the belt so they could run. They had these uh, toga sweatpants and they were ready for action, you know. And that's the point here. He says, prepare your minds for action. They have active minds. Our culture teaches our kids to be passive in their thinking. You know, if you're tired, what do you do? Well, you turn on the TV, you're going to veg, like I said. It's just, uh, but there's messages just coming at you all the time. In fact, we find in the book of Proverbs that the folly cries out, I want you, come here, I've got great things for you. Wisdom is crying out, I've got wonderful things for you for life. And then the picture in Proverbs is this wisdom and folly are screaming at the highest points of the city. And who are you going to listen to? Our kids are hearing that all the time. And we teach them, we need to teach them who to listen to. Actually, whom to listen to, but okay. Know the world that God has given us to minister to, to serve him. Christians have taken basically three approaches to culture. The first is to be offended by what we see in popular culture or the culture around us. I mean, pick a culture, corporate culture, educational culture, political culture. I mean, a lot of cultures that are influencing us. I'm just focusing on one just because of our time. Pop culture tends to be the parlance of the day anyway. I was in Nairobi. You know what's hot in Nairobi now in the entertainment world? What's hot in the United States right now? I mean, it's our greatest export. It's our largest export. But there's a lot to be offended by, isn't there? It's easy to be offended so that we want to withdraw into our Christian bubble. Forget it. Don't know what's going on. Who cares? They're going to hell anyway, right? The problem is that doesn't help our kids a whole lot. Nor does it allow us to function, I think, as salt and light. 
In fact, Tolkien puts in the mouth of uh, one of the characters in The Fellowship of the Ring, the first part of The Lord of the Rings. When the fellowship is getting ready and they're trying to figure out whether or not they should really be going. Um, The hobbits thought, we're okay here in the Shire. Hobbiton's pretty safe. Mordor is so far away, so far away. And one of the elves makes this statement. He says this, the wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot ever fence it out. We as parents, we as adults have a real responsibility to help our kids understand the, the, the foundation of the faith, but at the same time to understand with the heart and mind of Jesus Christ how we take that foundation to live and how we take that foundation to make an impact on the world as well. I have a long list of celebrities that I pray for every single day to come to Christ. And I don't pray these little patronizing prayers. I think of specific things I'd like for them to do. Like this morning I was praying that these individuals would come across a Christian today that will commend the gospel just by the way they live, by the things they say, maybe something they read. And my list gets longer. But it's incredible what God does as you pray. In fact, um, I don't know if uh, I, I asked... Crawford, he wouldn't tell me if you've had the group Corn here for a, a praise and worship. Probably not. Corn uh, is a new metal group. As you know, they've been around quite a while uh, out of Bakersfield, California. And uh, here are the founding members. The far, fellow on the far right is named Brian Welch, Head Welch. And in 2005, Head came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. The guy to the far left is a fieldie, a Reginald Arvizu the bass player, founding bass player. And a couple of years ago, he came to know Jesus Christ as well. Now, these guys were strung out on meth and alcohol, sex for for over a dozen years. I use them as examples from their songs. They talk about nihilism and emptiness and so on. And God saved them. Who are you praying for? Seriously. If you want to find out these guys' stories, uh, Head's story uh, is in, in a book, Save Me From Myself, and Fieldies. I'm almost through with Fieldies because it just came out on Got the Life, uh, how they came to Christ. It's amazing. And you realize the life that they were leading, how in the world do these guys get saved? It's amazing. God is in the transformation business, and nobody is beyond his grace. Who are you praying for? You've got people in your family that you've given up. Who are you praying for? My prayer is that you look at people in the world, whether it be celebrities or politicians or whoever, and see them through the eyes of Jesus Christ. They don't deserve it. That's the point. We get to pray and ask God's grace to reach into their hearts and transform them. You got some football or or basketball players, some baseball players. I won't say NASCAR, but some of that you would really want to see one to Christ. Aren't all NASCAR Drivers, Christians, I don't know, okay. But, um, who are you praying for? Yes, that's what I said. (laughs) Who are you praying for? Don't limit God. Have an incredibly large view. A A second approach is to be delighted by culture so that we assimilate and become just like it. Sometimes we let our kids dress and do things just so they can go along 
Sometimes we do the same thing ourselves. But it's not just the kids, it's us. We will measure God's blessings by the bottom line. Look how many people go to this church. Look how many books he sold. Look how many CDs she sold. Oh, God must be blessed. That's not how God registers his blessings, is it? Never, ever. And sometimes those things become an end to themselves. I looked for the world and I found it in the church. I looked for the church and I found it in the world. To be distinctly different but with a heart and mind of Christ is so compelling to a world that desperately needs hope. Not just something else to do on Sundays. And the third approach is, I think, the biblical approach is which is to be distressed by culture so that we engage. I've already talked about that. That leads us up to this point. Because this reflects the heart of Jesus Christ. In Second Peter chapter 2, this is just kind of a sidebar here. I see a picture of this. In this passage, the Apostle Peter is talking about how God always judges the ungodly. God always rescues the godly. And then he makes this analogy with a lot of all people. You know, I could think of a lot better examples, but I think his point is well made because he chose Lot. Certainly no paragon of virtue. But he calls Lot a righteous man who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Notice he was distressed. It broke his heart. He was tormented. Let me ask you, what torments you? When you look at the world around you, do you click your tongue and say, oh, these sinful people, these ungodly people? Or does it break your heart? Does it hurt? I mean, does it really hurt? Sometimes we get so, so smug in our Christian life that we've lost the power. We have a form of godliness And yet, through our lives, we deny the power. Well, one last passage and some story and we're done. In Acts chapter 17, which is a key in this, it's a passage you know exceptionally well. The Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, has been run out of Thessalonica, down to Berea, gets run out of there by the Jewish leaders, leaves Silas and Timothy there, and then heads down to Athens. Athens was the center of philosophical thought. It was the center of religious thought Everything and everybody came to Athens. And the passage says this. While Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was what? Greatly distressed. You can't escape it. Every time, every time people encounter in the Bible those who have great need, it hurts. Not just, I'm here to be your savior. I'm here to change your life. I'm here because you need me. No, the power of Jesus Christ and the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives, it hurts. And you've got to do something. He was greatly distressed that the city was swamped. It says in Greek, swamped with idols. So he reasoned. First in the synagogues, then in the marketplace, to anybody that would listen. Then they brought him to the Areopagus, which is this big stone. I'm going to show you here in a second. Big stone where all the leaders met. And they wanted to hear what he was talking about. And there he shared Jesus Christ with him. 
Men of Athens, he says to them, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. He is doing here exactly what he says he does in 1 Corinthians 9. Go back four chapters. He's preaching. He's got Jews and God-fearing Greeks. What does he do? He opens up the Bible and tells them the story of God interacting with the world through the Jews and so on. And it culminates in Jesus Christ. He can't do that here. He's in Athens. They don't even know what the Bible is. So what did he do? He carefully studied their objects of worship until he found something that he could use that altar to the unknown God. Ah, here's something I can use. He was desperate to build a bridge to Jesus Christ for this multicultural group here. And that's what he found. Let me, let me show you the pictures here just so you can visualize what's going on. If you've ever been to Athens, you know, that's the Parthenon. It's on top of the Acropolis, the high part of the city. In the time of Paul, this was jammed with idols all the way around it. Jammed with idols and little altars and places of worship. When I was up there, I turned around, I took a picture down off, uh, off the Acropolis, and uh, this right here, that's the, that's the Areopagus, that big stone right there in the middle. And it, it, it's obvious it's there, that's where the, they, they met. And then I turned and took a picture back up so you could see where the Acropolis is. And then I turned and took a picture down at the marketplace. See how big that marketplace is? At the time that Paul was there, that marketplace was jammed with idols, little altars, temples. Some of them were vile and violent. Many of them were immoral. And folks, some of them were just downright pornographic. Paul walked around and it hurt. It hurt so bad. It sounds a lot like our world today, doesn't it? It hurt him so bad. And so he studied those objects of worship. How can I share Jesus Christ with these people? How can I do that? And so he did. But it's all started with his heart. All started with his heart. In fact, let me just do this real quick and we'll be done. What was Paul's motivation? What was Paul's motivation? He was greatly distressed. Any ministry born out of a broken heart will always be effective. Anyone will. Let God break your hearts, please. And what were Paul's methods? Just just very quickly. He sought to understand the culture. He started where they were. Didn't expect them to have some level of morality before he would share with them. He was positive about the truth he, he saw in them. You guys are really religious. Boy, are you guys religious. Everybody is, by the way. Everybody worships something. He knew and quoted their sources. He didn't quote from the Bible, but he quoted from Eratus, who was a Stoic poet and philosopher. He quoted from Epimenides, an Epicurean poet and philosopher. Sometimes when I'm with young people, I'll quote from Lady Antebellum or from um, Bruno Mars or from, um, oh, you name it. There's so many that have some interesting things to say about life in the world. They all are teaching us, trying to teach us something. They don't even realize it themselves. But he communicated the gospel. You never water down the gospel, ever. Jesus Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead. We trust in that. Our sins are washed away and we have relationship with him we are reconciled not because we've earned it because we're worthy of it but because of his grace isn't that awesome so my challenge for you fellowship those of you who are visiting 
Where's your heart? Have you let God break your heart? When you look at the world around you, are you seeing it through the eyes of Christ? Who are you praying for? True engagement begins on your knees. Are you up for it? I mean, seriously. Do you want to be part of what God is doing? Start on your knees and watch what he does. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We are so overwhelmed by the grace that you give to us. And now I pray, Father, for the people that are listening here, that they will be so aware of your love in their lives, the grace that you have given to them, they cannot help but have their broken hearts turn into action as they look at the world around them. We're driven to their knees to pray and opportunities to serve. Always looking for opportunities in the most unusual places to commend the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way they live and the things they say. It's what you've called us to be and to do. We want the word Christian to mean people who give, people who sacrifice, people who love. And no longer a political or social term with an agenda that is at its bottom line rooted in power but one in which we serve in humility for your grace, your praise forever, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. God bless you, everyone. Enjoy this day in Christ. It's awesome. God bless you. Thanks.